Good morning. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how you all feel, but that that um, that song time just really um, was special to me. Um, I think um, I'm excited about this morning uh, because um, that's exactly what the passage we're going to look at. We're going to we're going to see Christ in different ways that John wants us to see him, and um, and so many of the songs that we sang this morning were just. Jesus Messiah, um, name above all names, um, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel. And um, so anyway, I hope you guys just are excited and, and uh, that the Lord will just open our, our minds and our hearts to what he has to say to us this morning. Um, there, uh, as most of you know, we've been walking through a study in the book of John and um, so we find ourselves this morning coming to the last part of chapter 18, and then we're going to go into the beginning of, of chapter 19. Uh, last week, uh, if you remember, I just was thinking of the words that one song says, with faithful hands that cannot fail, you'll bring me home to heaven. And last week, David contrasted in the passage uh, Jesus' faithfulness with, with Peter's unfaithfulness in his um, denials of Christ. But um, in all of those things, as he pointed out, God was sovereign in all of it. And so we're, we're going to see some of those same themes this morning, <clears throat> but um, um, let's just get started. I, I, I want us to read first, <clears throat> excuse me, John 18 and starting in verse 28, and I'm going to read through uh, 1916. So it's quite a lengthy passage, but... Let's just read it together. Um, I'll read it, and, um, and then we'll discuss it. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answers, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! 
and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will, not, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. <clears throat> I know that was a long portion, but we're going to look through all those this morning. And um, just to lay the setting uh, of uh, what I'm going to talk about. So um, this uh, section in scripture where Jesus is brought before Pilate and he's condemned. Um, uh, Matthew talks about it in Matthew 26 and 27. Uh, Mark and Mark 15, Luke and Luke 22 and 23. So if you're taking notes, those are the other passages that um, you know I'm going to pull things together from as well as from John here. Um, so uh, I want us to see first that um, Jesus went through two trials basically here. He went through the religious phase of the trial uh, with the Jewish leaders, and then he went through the civil phase of the trial with the Roman government. And both of these uh, trials had three phases. Um, and so I'll just, uh, as a background, um, I'll tell you about these. So phase one of the religious trial was Jesus was tried before Annas, the former high priest. And so you might think, you know, why does the Bible say the high priest is Annas and then, but it's Caiaphas, his, his son-in-law? Well, it's kind of like, I think, you know, when we elect a senator, you know, uh, even after the guy's retired, we might still refer to Bob Dole as, Senator Dole, you know, in just respect. And so Annas was still, you know, called the high priest. Sometimes you see here in the word. And um, as a little history, Annas uh, was the high priest from AD 6 to 15. And, um, and he's not the current sitting high priest. That's Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Uh, son but um, it was Annas who had great influence in Jerusalem at this time. And um, uh, perhaps out of anyone that wanted to see Jesus dead and gone the most, I would, uh, I would submit that it might be Annas because Annas was the um, high priest who instituted all of this temple commerce where he was extorting the people and, um, and just, just all kinds of not right things. Uh, and um, so 
who has the most to lose in this situation? It's, it's Annas. If, if Jesus hangs around and continues to gain followers for himself, and you know Jesus has already went into the temple and, and overthrew uh, the money changers, and so uh, he's basically called Annas out for these practices. And so Annas has um, a vendetta against him and really needs Jesus to go away. Um, so the first phase is they take him to Annas's house. And uh, again, that shows how much influence Annas had at the time. I mean, they didn't take him first to the sitting high priest Caiaphas. They took him to Annas. And so Annas questions him some, but at um, Annas's house, they can't get a conviction. So he sends him, sends him bound to his son-in-law's house, Caiaphas, who's the current sitting high priest. And um, so before Caiaphas, you see that... Um, they were, there were all kinds of accusations. They'd bring in witnesses, and someone would say, I think he did this, and others would say, I think he did that. But all these accusations were flying, but none of them st could stick because they were um, countering each other's testimonies. They weren't lining up with one another. So um, Caiaphas, uh, perhaps thinking that this is his last opportunity to get Jesus, um, because many times before it talks about how they were going to get him, and then Jesus slipped away. But they had him in their hands at this point in time. And so Caiaphas asked Jesus a point-blank question. And he says, he knows if Jesus answers honestly that Jesus is going to blaspheme in their minds and be worthy of capital punishment. So Caiaphas says, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And Caiaphas says, this man is deserving of death. So, so they basically got him there. And uh, as a third phase of the trial, um, the Sanhedrin were um, brought together. They're kind of like the Supreme Court at the time, and they're the ones who can pronounce judgment. And so the Sanhedrin are brought together, are convened to give the appearance of legality of this um, phony trial, if you will. And they confirm the verdict that they condemn the penalty that Jesus must be put to death for blasphemy. And uh, as it says in the, in the word here, all this was happening in the middle of the night. So... If you ever find yourselves in the midst of a trial in the middle of the night, then it's probably not like on the up and up. So just as it wasn't here. Um, so now it's early morning and not wanting to lose any time, they take Jesus to Pilate because they do not have the authority to execute him as, as we read here. They said, uh, we, we can't, we're not allowed to do that. So um, they take him to Pilate and they want Pilate to pronounce judgment on Jesus and be the one that will... Um, uh, put him to death. Uh, so that's why they take him to Pilate. And so this civil trial, uh, now that he's in Pilate in the hands of the Roman government, this also has three phases. So first you see Jesus appear uh, before Pilate the first time, and Pilate's questioning him, and he's trying to ascertain whether or not the accusation against Jesus has any basis. Uh, second phase is uh, when Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, it turns out that Herod, who is the uh, ruler over the Galilean region at the time, is in town. So I think Pilate sees a way out of not having to be involved in it. So he sends him over to Herod. Herod questions Jesus, and um, Jesus doesn't respond to Herod. So they rough him up a bit, they mock him, and then they send him back to Pilate. So the third phase of the trial, the civil trial, is that Jesus appears before Pilate a second time. And in that second appearance, um, Pilate chooses to severely beat him, I think as a way to appease the Jews and, and not have to uh, pronounce death judgment on him. But um, he, he uh, sends him over to a flogging 
which in that day is practically being beaten to death. Um, in fact, it was, so, it was so bad that uh, Roman citizens were not allowed to be flogged. They couldn't, you know, that's not a, a judgment that they could, would have to subject, be subjected to. And so then uh, Pilate ultimately condemns him to be crucified on the cross. <clears throat> so that's our background um, from all these passages. And uh, as today, as we look at the passages at the end of chapter 18 and 19, what we're going to see, this is this song, Show Us Christ. What we're going to see today is that John has something in mind. He's going to take one more time to clearly show us Jesus' identity. And um, you might ask, like, why? What, why is he going to do that? I think all of you know why, right? John 20, 31, you know why he wrote the book. We've talked about that verse over and over. Everyone could probably quote it right now. John said he wrote the gospel of John because he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's what John um, intends to show us today here. Um, a guy named D.A. Carson writes, theologically, the dominant theme in this passage is the kingdom and the authority of Jesus. So um, just to confirm that, uh, if you look through this passage and you count all the times that God uses the word king, kingdom, and authority, it's about 15 times throughout this section that we're looking at today. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about, um, that I believe John is wanting us to see Jesus as a king, but he's going to explain to us what kind of king Jesus is. And um, so I'm going to go through four aspects of Jesus' kingship. Um, one is that Jesus is a perfect king. We'll see that John shows us that. Secondly, we'll see that Jesus is a sovereign king. Um, we'll see that John shows us that. And then Jesus is a truth-proclaiming king, number three. And then that Jesus is ultimately a rejected king. So um, let's see how John emphasizes the point that Jesus is a perfect king. Um, I'll go back here and, and read John 18, 28 through 30. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him. Their response is really a non-response, right? It's, uh, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So um, Pilate has a perfectly legitimate question if uh, they are bringing Jesus over to be on trial. You know, what accusation do you bring against this man? But the Jews aren't interested in a trial. They're not interested in... Pilate setting up a court and, and, and trying Jesus uh, in, in a righteous way. They just want Jesus to be pronounced dead. And that's why you see that they have a non-response here. Um, they don't tell him what charge that they're bringing against him. They just say, if this man were doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. It's like they're telling Pilate, hey, are you questioning our you know, judgment here? Uh, this guy is, is a bad character and, and he needs to die and and you're not, you know, what, what are you doing? Are you questioning us? And so just as a little background history, um, Pilate has been the, a governor of Judea for about four years now, 
And um, it's well known that there's a lot of animosity between him and the Jews, and uh, to which there's been situations of civil unrest that have popped up. Well, these things have gotten back to Caesar, and uh, in a sense, Pilate's on the hot seat uh, in that if he can't uh, figure out how to govern effectively um, and not create this civil unrest going on in his, his region, uh, Caesar could potentially uh, depose him from that um, position. Uh, but really back in this day, it was more likely that Caesar would just execute Pilate. <laughs> so, so Pilate's really stuck between a rock and a hard place here um, because the, uh, the Jews have pulled the offense card on him and Pilate wants to make sure that uh, he keeps the peace. Uh, but, um, you know, they're basically saying like, hey, uh, if you're questioning our motives, um, you know, then I don't think that's a good idea because you know what, you know, what kind of unrest we can, we can uh, stir up here. So the reason the Jewish leaders respond like this is because they know they don't have a charge against Jesus that will hold up in a Roman court. So um, when they were talking to Jesus, are you the Christ? Jesus says, yes, I'm the Christ, I'm the Son of God. Well, that doesn't hold any water in, in, in the Roman court. I mean, that's not, that's not a crime punishable by, by death, that's a, that's a Jewish thing. So they know they don't have a charge against him that will stick. Um, and why don't they have a charge against him that, that will stick? I think this is where John is showing us that because Jesus is a perfect king, uh, there was nothing they could find. There was nothing. The, these Jewish people have been around Jesus for the whole time of his ministry. They've seen what he's done. They've seen what he's said. And they have nothing. They, they have nothing to accuse him of. It, it, that he, no, no bad that he's done. And um, so Jesus is a perfect king. Um, also, when Pilate is doing his own investigation uh, of Jesus, um, He's saying, I find no guilt in him. And throughout this passage, we're going to see that Pilate says, I find no guilt in him three times. Um, Pilate is just trying to find a way to let him go. Um, but like I said, he's kind of boxed into a corner. So, <clears throat> so this is what John is doing in my understanding. He, makes, he wants to make the point that even though Jesus is on trial, he's a perfect king. There's all these accusations flying and all kinds of noise going on. But uh, John is saying, let me be clear, Jesus is perfect. Um, so what does that mean for us? After this, these sections, I'm going to talk about what it means for us. And then afterwards, we'll have a time in our discussion time to go further into this. But just one thing that I see that this means for us is um, if Jesus were not perfect, then his sacrifice would not have been acceptable to God. So he was perfect. And John is making this point to us to see that there's no accusations against Jesus, no real accusations. There's false ones, but no real ones that can condemn him. And um, it means that we are able to be righteous before God because Jesus is perfect. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake... He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's one thing it means that Jesus is a perfect king, that we might become the righteousness of God. Another one is that uh, it means that we're able to have a relationship with God. 
Um, I don't know if you guys <clears throat> have ever seen like the, um, any of those tracks that kind of show this divide where like you got Jesus on this side and then there's this canyon and man on this side and how can he get across? Well, according to this next verse I'm gonna read, it's almost more like it's Jesus, it's God on this side, man on this side and a wall between them rather than like a canyon because um, let me read um, Ephesians 2, 11 through 16 um, to explain how God, that we are no longer enemies of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So that's just... I mean, I hope today that as we look at these things um, that John's trying to show us about Jesus, we just become more grateful. Our faith grows. Uh, we can be thankful that because Jesus was a perfect king, the wall was torn down and that we can have a relationship with God. So such a precious thing to have a relationship with God. Um, so let me read here, um, go to the next one, that Jesus is a sovereign king. Um, David began mentioning this last week in, in, in the passage that we went through. I mean, actually two weeks ago. Yeah, last week was fifth Sunday. So um, anyway, we see this in chapter 18, beginning in verse 31. Um, so I mentioned before that the Jews kind of have Pilate between a rock and a hard place. And I think Pilate sees an opportunity here to try to get out of this situation. So in verse 31, he says, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So um, before we go into this, I want us to look at Mark 10, 33, because it's really important for us to see that Jesus predicted that he would be executed by the Gentiles. So here you see, um, Pilate basically giving the Jews an opportunity. Hey, you take him. You, you uh, execute the law to him. You, you take him by your own and judge him by your own law. But look at Mark 10, 1033. Um, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. What's amazing about this is that Jesus predicted it down to a T. They would mock him, they'd spit on him, they'd flog him. 
Jesus predicted all of this. He's sovereign over this. But what's interesting in John 18.31 is that Pilate seems to give the Jews temporary authority to put Jesus to death, even though in that time they, they didn't have that authority. So it looks like Pilate's giving them temporary authority. Um, but what happens? They don't, they don't take it. They, they, don't, they don't accept his, uh, his, his offer to them. And um, so you think like, well, that's odd. Why would they not take his offer? Here's their chance to get him, take him down, and put him to death. But the reason is because um, Jesus predicts three times in John how he will be executed, right? And, um, and if, the Jews, if the Jews took him and put him to death, how would, how would Jesus have died? He'd have been stoned, stoned to the ground. And so Jesus is sovereign over the situation. He's sovereign over the fact that the Jews don't take this opportunity. And uh, because three times in John, Jesus predicts what kind of death he will die. John 3.14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And John 8.28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And then finally in John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. <clears throat> so I think it's just um, amazing that Jesus is in control of the situation and knows that the way he has to die is by being lifted up on a cross. Um, so you have all this stuff going on and Jesus in the midst of this trial, in the midst of his suffering, um, which, you know, I, I can't even imagine, you know, being falsely accused and um, being mocked and spit on and, and hit about. Um, John is telling us that Jesus is not a victim of circumstances. Jesus is in control. This is a person who is a sovereign king. So you see everybody trying to work their angles. You see the Jews uh, who want him dead, and they think that they're in control, right? But Jesus is actually pulling the levers. And then you have Pilate who, who thinks that he's in control. Um, and he's talking to Jesus here in 19, verse 1910. I'll just skip ahead. He says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So Paul, I mean, Pilate thinks he's in control. He thinks he has that authority. But Jesus' response to him is, um, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from heaven. So um, I just think it's awesome to see that Jesus is the one who's in control. He's the one who dishes out authority um, and the other ones are just victims of his prophetic word. He's not a victim of their circumstances. They're victims of his prophetic word, and they're just carrying it out. So um, what does that mean for us? Um, probably, <clears throat> I think we talked about some of these things a couple of weeks ago in our discussion times. I just want to point out um, a few things here, and then we can talk about them more late, later. But um, it's extremely important to see what God's sovereignty means for us. I mean, in this situation, <clears throat> um, not to be overly dramatic, but this, these were probably the darkest hours in history. 
right? You have Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord of all creation, who is being put on trial and being sentenced to death. So these are dark hours. But even in this dark situation, he's still moving and he's still working. Um, And he's even employing the sin of sinful people to carry out his plan and to accomplish his purposes. Um, So what that means for us um, is that God is also in control of everything that goes on in our lives. And um, this week, uh, I was supposed to have a meeting at the back in Kansas City, come back from New Jersey, and uh, with a guy from Albuquerque that I work with, and we've become pretty good friends, but he had to cancel the meeting because he had a 22-year-old niece that died in a car accident, and, uh, and th- their family was really close. Um, his brother-in-law was like his best friend, or is his best friend, and um, so we texted back and forth a little bit, but... Um, What's awesome is, is Ed uh, is a believer, and he, um, uh, you know, gave hope in, in his text. And uh, what was neat is he was actually texting me and two other guys that were in New Jersey that had to get back for this meeting. And those guys are not believers to my knowledge, but Ed was explaining the situation, and we were texting back. It was like a group text and, you know, praying for your family and things. And then Ed says... You know, yeah, it's really hard, but I know that my niece is in the arms of Jesus right now. And so it's exciting because these other two guys that I work with on a regular basis are on this group text, kind of seeing this conversation between Christians go on. Um, and so God is sovereign over that. God, God um, that's a heartbreaking situation. But um, if you think about Jesus being sovereign in this, his darkest hour, then what does that mean for us? It means that even in our dark situations, even in our lowest times, our our greatest sufferings, Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control, and we can have peace and comfort in that. Um, So what other things does uh, God's sovereignty mean to us? You guys probably discussed this. I think we did in our group a couple weeks ago. Um, It really should remove all cause for worry from our lives. Um, does it? I think that's just a, between you and God how you handle that. But I, I know I, I get, get, tend to worry a lot. Um, and uh, I'm not really walking by faith in that God is sovereign, right? That God is in control. And um, no matter what the situation is, no matter where it's going, no matter... Uh, What's going on around me? God is in control. So it really should remove all cause for worry because um, God's character is, is that he is a sovereign God. And um, not only does God love us, but he has the ability to care for us. And we have this promise in, in Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So when you are experiencing worry, Um, That's a promise that we should walk in um, to remind ourselves that God will work all things together for good. Um, And so um, another way the sovereignty of God impacts our everyday lives is that we can trust God's sanctifying work in us. Um, You know, a lot of times I think we, we bounce back and forth between 
uh, our part and God's part. But um, in sanctification, are we responsible? Absolutely. We have a role in sanctification, right? I mean, we make decisions to obey the Lord. We obey, make decisions to reject the Lord. We, but God is sovereign over this process. And um, if you look at these verses here, his sanctifying work in our lives is in play when we make seemingly good decisions that we think, uh, yeah, this is what I should do. And even when we make whimsical, foolish decisions, his sovereignty is still in play in the sanctifying work in our lives. Galatians 3.3 says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And then Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was sure of that because he's sure of God's character. He's sure that God is sovereign. And then Romans 8, 29 and 31. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we will be sanctified. God's sovereignty will ensure that. Um, and I don't know about you, but uh, this is maybe a kind of a fourth thing here that what I think God's sovereignty means to us, but um, this gives me freedom from um, just being paralyzed about making every decision in life. I don't know if you've known people. Uh, I had a roommate one time uh, back in Virginia that like, you'd ask him anything and he'd just be like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Hey, do you want to go out to lunch? I'm not sure. Hey, uh, do you want to this or that? I'm not sure. And I was just thinking like, that guy frustrated me so, so badly because he just couldn't, he just couldn't make a decision. And, and I think there's sometimes believers that we get way hung up on, is it this or that? Should I do? I mean, actually it's interesting because uh, one time, uh, uh, my son Caleb, he was in the car and it was a situation where I was going off to do something and I wasn't sure. And, and he said like, dad, why don't you just do what's right? And I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. But as you all know, sometimes we even are perplexed in which one is right, right? Should I do this or should I do that? So I think what I'm trying to say is God's sovereignty, what it means for us is we don't have to be paralyzed by making decisions, okay? We, we make decisions with the best information we have um, that we think is what God wants us to do, uh, but if we make a decision that is wrong, all is not lost. I mean, God, is his faithfulness has the ability to set us back on the right course. So God wants us to be moving, making decisions, uh, but he's sovereign and he will bring us to the completion of sanctification. Um, so, um, oh, I do have a fourth way here <clears throat> that I believe uh, God's sovereignty, what it means to us. Um, there was a period of time that, you know, um, I had gone to some counseling and this counselor, he said something that I'll never forget. Uh, he was just talking about how you know, each of us in the way we're brought up, you know, our parents, um, our circumstances, um, when we're children, by, by the time you're adults, you tend to like filter things through. It's like you've got a set of glasses that are 
um, made up of all those things that you you grew up with. You, you might have had a dad leave the home, like, like me, to where you don't know if your father loves you. You know, um, you might have situations where um, your parents in their perfectionism always were putting you down because you couldn't live up to what they wanted, you know, you to be or something. And anyway, when we're adults, you know, uh, it's like we have a set of glasses that uh, everything that we look at through life, it goes through that filter. And so we can tend to have wrong responses, you know, uh, like when we're married and our wife says something and then all of a sudden it comes back pouring in through the filter that we're looking at that like she's rejecting me just like my dad rejected me or something like that. And so what he was saying was um, we need our glasses to be clean and have a new pair of glasses where we see everything through the filter of God's word. And when we catch ourselves responding in ways that are the old filter, get those glasses off, put on glasses of God's word and respond to life in that way. And so I think another way the sovereignty of God should impact our lives is that we should have a very healthy sense of identity. And I think that it is sometimes our backgrounds and how we're raised and our dad was an alcoholic or this or that that can shake our foundation and our sense of identity. But God's sovereignty and his sovereignty we can and should have a very healthy sense of identity. When we understand how powerful God is and how much he loves us, we can know that we are secure in him. Um, We're objects of God's sovereign love, and we need to allow God to define us and give us our worth rather than looking to the ever-changing noise in the world around us. Um, A couple of verses that um, go along with this are Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, so sometimes, you know, we have that filter of like feeling condemned and we have to react to it and respond to it, but there's no condemnation. Our true identity is there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. And, um, and then Romans eight thirty eight and 39, which is one of my favorite verses. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I want to read that one again. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who does that include? Nor anything else in all creation. Who does that include? It includes you. You're, you're not able to separate yourself from the love of God. <clears throat> you're, the people around you, your upbringing, your parents, the people that influence, that you run into on a daily basis that might you know, ruin your day, they don't have um, a chance at separating you from the love of God, including yourself. And um, so our identity should be the most secure of any people that walk the earth. So John has supported the fact that Jesus is a perfect king and that Jesus is a sovereign king. And now he will show us that Jesus is a truth-proclaiming king. So up to now, here in John, you've seen that like they can't get anything to stick, right? They went to Annas, they went to Caiaphas, their Pilate's house. They, what's the charge? Uh, We're not going to tell you because we really don't have one. So, but you see in Luke's gospel, in Luke's 23, they finally get what they need. 
okay, to, to get Pilate kind of boxed into this corner. So in Luke 23, 2, it says, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation, one, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, two. Both counts were just bald-faced lies, okay? Um, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, he did say he was the Christ. That one's true. But this accusation is something that has to catch Pilate's attention uh, because Pilate cannot tolerate um, opposition to Caesar. So they make these false accusations about Jesus that he's like this rebel, he's this insurrectionist, and, um, and, now, and now they, they say that to, to Pilate, and Pilate's going to have to deal with that because he can't, he can't allow that if that's true. Um, so... Uh, as they're saying, Pilate, you'd better watch out for this man because he is dangerous. He's a threat to the empire. Um, you see that uh, Pilate then goes into questioning Jesus and all four gospel writers, um, they, they uh, line up with what this question was that Pilate had for Jesus. He says, are you the king of the Jews? He's really, he's really asking like, you know, who, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Or not, he's not calling him Lord, but who are you, man, standing in front of me? You know, they're saying that you're a king and uh, you certainly don't look like a king. I mean, if you think of from Pilate's perspective, at this point, Jesus probably has parts of his beard plucked out and he's probably got bruises on his face and some dried blood, some dried spit. And, uh, and Pilate's like, are you the king of the Jews? And... Um, because you don't look like one uh, from my perspective. So uh, as he continues to, to say this, um, notice something about Pilate's question. He, he wants it to be black and white. Are you a king or aren't you? Are you what they say about you or aren't you? Because that would make it easy for Pilate, right? If Jesus, he could just settle it right here. And, and if Jesus would come back and say, yeah, I'm who they said I was, then Pilate's conscience can be cleared. He can sentence them to death and be done with them. If Jesus would come back and say, I'm not who they say I am, then Pilate could perhaps dismiss the case and Jesus could go back to Galilee and, and he'd become irrelevant, right? Uh, but really, um, Jesus' answer could be, it's complicated, <laughs> okay? Because Jesus was not who they said he was. The answer is really yes and no. I am a king, um, but no, I'm not who they think I am, not who they say I am. So, <clears throat> um, so when Jesus answers him this question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered and said, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? It's almost like you can sense Pilate's frustration here, right? He's saying like, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He's just getting frustrated because he's like, this, I wish I didn't even have to be involved in this stupidity here. It's like not, this is your Jews and your Jewish stuff, you know. Um, but Jesus doesn't let it go, right? Because um, Pilate has got to deal with Jesus, whether he wants to or not. And Jesus goes on to say, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Um, so Jesus is basically telling Pilate, look, you have, you have a perception of a king, right? And I don't look like him, okay? And I, and I don't act like him. You have this perception of what a king should look like, but I'm going to tell you that I am a king, but my kingdom is not from this world, and I'm going to tell you what kind of king I am, okay? So Jesus goes on to say, um, as Pilate says, so are you a king? Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So Jesus is basically saying, he is the truth. Um, he is the king of truth. And um, notice also that Jesus adds one more thing. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus doesn't, just doesn't stop with like, you know, um, uh, I have come to the world to bear witness to the truth, to where it's open-ended, to where it's like pie in the sky. Hey, I have truth. You have truth. Your truth is good for you. My truth is good for me. Jesus goes on to say that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So he brings it back to himself, not just that there's some broad truth out there, right? So what does this mean to us? Um, what it means is it's not okay to be like, yeah, truth, great. I believe in that. I believe in Jesus. On the answers to life stuff, I'm good. I think I can handle all the big questions in life. I'm okay in all these areas. Why Jesus is saying, what Jesus is really saying is the litmus test to uh, whether a person really knows the truth is how they live their life. Um, are they listening to me? Are they following me? Are they doing what I say? That's really the litmus test of what Jesus is getting at here. So you can say all day long, I know the truth on the truth stuff. I'm good. Um, I'm all for Jesus. Um, but the real question is, do we listen to his voice and do we obey his word? That determines the actions. Um, what we believe about that determines the actions we take uh, and the words that we say um, through our lives. Because Jesus says, that's my kingdom. That's the king. That's the kind of king I am. And if you really want to determine who holds me as king in their lives, look at the way they live and how they obey me. So we can have more discussion about this afterwards, about like what it means for Jesus to be the king in our lives. But so we've seen that Jesus is a perfect king. He's a sovereign king. And he is a truth-proclaiming king. And finally, that he's a rejected king. Uh, somewhere between Pilate's first questioning of Jesus and now, you see that he's tried to pass the buck to Herod. Um, well, he's tried to pass the buck twice. Once like, hey, Jews, you take care of them and, and you settle this. It's a Jewish matter. They reject that offer, right? So that's the first time he tries to get rid of it. Second time is he tries to like, oh, Herod's in town. He's the, over Galilee. Jesus is a Galilean. You handle it, you know. And I'm sure when Jesus came back, he was like, nah. Not this again. I've got to deal with this now. Um, so twice he tried to pass the buck, and it didn't work. 
um, again, as these people are being instruments of God's prophetic word. Um, so between the end of John 18 and the beginning of John 19, Pilate tries, and we're going to read these sections because you can see he tries again and again to get rid of Jesus. But again and again, the Jews reject his proposals, which is ultimately a rejection of Christ. Um, so first you see in, in <clears throat> at the end of verse 18, he's like, oh yeah, hey, you guys have a custom that at the Passover, I'll release a prisoner. Um, how about Jesus? Okay, because I can't find anything wrong with him. How about him? They're like, no, we want the other man. They actually want an insurrectionist, you know, a robber, a bad guy. Um, so they reject that proposal. Um, and then um, Pilate thinks, uh, here's what I'll do. I'll flog Jesus. You can see that after they rejected his proposal to release Jesus, um, it says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And, um, and then after he gets flogged, he brings him out and says, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. It's almost as if Pilate is, is getting squeezed. Um, they're not taking his offers. Um, he's got to deal with this situation. And so he has Jesus flogged which is the worst form of punishment other than death. And I think Pilate kind of feels like uh, if I get him flogged, I'll bring him out here, he'll look bloodied and beaten, and uh, they'll say, okay, yeah, we cry, uncle, and um, let, let him go. That was enough punishment for him. But they're not satisfied with the flogging because their end goal is that he be put to death. So, so Jesus gets flogged, and he says, look, here he is again. I find no guilt in him. But they start saying, uh, crucify him, crucify him. They just start this rally going. And, uh, and he says, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Um, but then they come back and say, um, he needs to die. Uh, and then Pilate has a conversation about, tell me, talk to me, because I have the authority to release you. Jesus says, your authority wouldn't really be here unless it came from above. Um, but then finally, the Jews, to where they don't give Pilate any other out, they say, if you release this man, you're Caesar's friend, or you're not Caesar's friend. And um, at that point, Pilate, being in the situation he's in, he cannot, he cannot just let Jesus go. I mean, they're, gonna, they're making accusations that he might not be Caesar's friend, and if word gets back to Rome that this is going on, that Pilate, if there's any question of Pilate's loyalty to Caesar, then Pilate's a dead man himself, okay? So um, it's just it's all playing out um, to lead up to, to Jesus dying on the cross. And so um, just as a side note, I mean, you, you, you catch it here, but when um, he asked Jesus, are you, you know, uh, when, well, when he heard that they said he's the son of God, Pilate was even more afraid when he heard this statement. In my understanding, you know, the Romans did have little gods, God for this, God for that. So they were superstitious in that sense. And um, at this point, you could probably assume that Pilate's wife has already been talking to him. And in the other gospel accounts, you see where Pilate's wife was extremely troubled <laughs> about the situation. She was having bad dreams. 
She was probably talking to Pilate, and then Pilate hears that they say, he says he's a son of God, so Pilate is afraid. I mean, he might even be thinking, I mean, who is this guy? Is he a little g God, maybe, that has come in the form of human flesh? Um, either way, he's, he's afraid of the situation. His wife has got him running scared, too, with what she's saying about things. And so... Um, Again, it's just amazing how many times that Pilate is like, I want to release him. It says, it says even after that, he says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. So who knows? There might have been two, three, four, five other attempts that Pilate kept going back and forth, like he'd done no wrong. I find no guilt in him. They're like, no, crucify him. We're going we're gonna to start a riot here if you don't do what we say. Um, he sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Um, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So John makes the point to us that Jesus is ultimately a rejected king. Okay. Um, which in some respects is, is sad that the Jews didn't accept him. But what does this mean for us today, right? It means this, that their rejection means that you and I have an opportunity to be accepted into the family of God. Um, and then later on, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, after the apostles started uh, doing their ministry, and Peter in Acts 4, 11 said, and preaching to the Jews, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Peter is saying that the foundation to a relationship with God starts with Jesus. And um, because he was rejected, we can be accepted. And uh, it's, just, it's just neat that, um, you know, Peter said that. And when Peter preached those words, many people got saved. Many people saw that, like, the rejected king, he was rejected, but, but we can be accepted uh, in him. Well, one, because he's, he's not dead. He he's, was raised from the dead. So anyway... Um, I hope that just those four aspects of Jesus, that he is um, perfect, that he is sovereign, that he is a truth-telling king, and that he was rejected, uh, can give us hope this morning um, and even develop our faith even more um, as we uh, understand what the implications of those things are. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> I just thank you for um, using John to write this gospel. I thank you, God, that um, it was really your words that flowed through him. But in your words, God, we see who you really are. We see Jesus. We understand aspects of you that 
have significant impact on our lives. And um, Holy Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room, God, that has not um, accepted you as their king, um, that they would turn to you, that they would see that you are sovereign, that you are perfect, that you, um, your perfect sacrifice and by your rejection has opened the door for us to be accepted um, into your family. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that's not a part of your family and they just know that in their heart, God, that they would just call out to you and, and uh, accept you for um, what you did for, for them and for us all in, in becoming sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God and that they might uh, become a part of your family. And Heavenly Father, I just pray even uh, that for those of us who are part of your family, that uh, these truths about who you are uh, will even impact our lives um, today and, and moving forward. Um, so God, I just pray that during our uh, next little time of discussion here, that uh, we can encourage one another as you have uh, given gifts to the church, Lord, and, um, and everyone might exercise their gifts, Lord, in, in encouraging one another um, in this time of discussion. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're-